I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. I'm very happy to welcome to my show the next guest, Nadine McCarthy Kahane, the founder of Stone and Strand. Nadine, thanks for joining us. No problem. Happy to be here. You know, I want to start by pointing our listeners to your website. So it's the the three words stone and strand dot com. Nadine, give us the elevator pitch. Actually, before we do that, you you are a Wharton grad, and it's great to have our alums back. Your class of twenty twelve, is that right? Yes, exactly. It goes by really quickly. Yeah, I was going to say it seems like yesterday, but you never took my class. I'm not, not a criticism, just a question of fact. You never took my my class, right? Trust me, if I could go back, I definitely would do. Oh, you're good. You should, you have a future in uh, in politics or something. But I I mostly just worry about forgetting people's names. But anyway, very nice to meet you, and it's great to welcome an alum back. Um, so Nadine, give us the elevator pitch for Stone and Strand. Sure. So Stone and Strand is a leading online jewelry retailer for stylish millennial women. We are founded for women by women, and our mission is to empower the female self-purchaser and really modernize what has traditionally been a very stuffy, overpriced shopping experience and turn it into a fresher, value-driven, fashionable, and importantly, include our sassy take on it as well. All right. So tell us a little bit about... Maybe we could start with the segment. So you said millennial women, but you pro- that's, that's an age demographic. Maybe you could say a little bit more about who your typical customer is. Yes. I, millennial women does refer to an age group, but I would say more importantly, it also refers to a mindset. Mm-hmm. And so our typical customer is the urban woman who buys jewelry for herself and cares about fashion. So she wants jewelry that fits into her wardrobe and looks beautiful. This is a huge change in the jewelry industry because in the past, jewelry was typically gifted. It was always used to signify a romance and a relationship, and it was always a man, gift, a man gifting to a woman for a special occasion. So we really aim to represent and serve this new modern working woman who's buying whatever she likes, whenever she likes, just because she loves it. Mm-hmm. So say a little bit, you've, 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 you've segmented, in, I suppose, in terms of consumer attitude in, in, in many ways here. But is there, what would you say, just some sort of ordinary things like like price and style, that sort of thing? How would you characterize the brand? Sure. So I think within the jewelry industry, there are a few things that are important. I would say in terms of segmentation, you know, certainly we're focusing on the female customer. Mm-hmm. You know, with respect to price point, we are looking at an accessible luxury price point. So most of our products are made in for example, 14 karat gold, which is a precious metal, but not as expensive as 18 karat gold. Mm-hmm. And last of all, within the jewelry industry, a lot of people segment by occasion. So you have people that focus on, you know, whether it's bridal jewelry or um, more everyday wear or special occasion jewelry where you're dripping in diamonds and going to a black carpet event. And we're very much about jewelry that you wear every day and never take off. Mm-hmm. And give us a sense of, of price points. You alluded to it, but I, I what what if can I go on your site? Can I buy something for three hundred dollars, or do I need to spend three thousand dollars? Yeah, so you're actually spot on. For everyday items, our average price point is three fifty. Mm-hmm. Okay, so relatively accessible, and maybe for our listeners, I our listeners. 
skew a bit male and probably just a bit older than your your demographic, but not not that much. Um, explain a little bit how the existing industry has been organized and the extent to w- how much of a difference uh, Stone and Strand really is. So the existing industry is very much a commoditized industry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most products tend not to have significant differentiation in terms of design. They tend not to be branded, and they tend to be very focused on the quality of the diamond and um, and the raw materials that are being used. It's much less of an emotional fall in love with the design purchase, mm-hmm. but much more of a rational, oh, this looks like good value. I think, you know, my wife would like it, and she's going to be really impressed with it, so I'm going to give it to her. And what we're doing really differently is because we're focusing on the woman, the most important thing is her falling in love with it. Mm -hmm. It's about her wanting it in the same way that she wants a Gucci bag or a YSL outfit. You know, it's about what it says about her and how it makes her feel much more than what the actual piece is made out of. So we really focus on design as well as quality and really work on building that emotional connection with the customer through our branding and our marketing. And I think most importantly, a big shift is also really helping her understand how to wear it. You know, that's one area in which we're really different from existing players because we have some jewelry that, you know, for example, women with three ear holes wear. And it's quite funny because I've showed the pieces to my husband and he'll say, like, where on earth do you fit that in? And what is that? Is that a ring? Is it an earring? So... It really is about showcasing to the woman how to wear it and how to make it part of her style and her everyday wardrobe. Okay, so uh, we have, and I I like this discipline, but our conversation in the early part of this interview has really focused on who your customer is and what the benefit proposition is to them. We haven't described at all what your solution concept is. And so how is it that you deliver on this value proposition? What is it that you actually do? in order to deliver this promise of high design, uh, personalized, uh, non-commoditized jewelry to, to to this customer? So I would say that it really starts from the beginning of the design and the selection process. Mm-hmm. We find that most traditional jewelers start from the, once again, the stone or the metal and work outwards from from that perspective. Mm-hmm. An interesting fact is that, you know, the average piece of jewelry takes six months to get from the design room or conceptualization all the way to the store floor. And the average turn of each item in the industry is only one X a year. Wow. So what we're doing is, in a sense, in, in a sense bringing fast fashion to fine jewelry mm. while keeping the quality that people expect from a higher-end purchase. So we really start from fashion trends from our customer what she's wearing, and work backwards. And we tend not to think about specific occasions, so we don't necessarily design for Mother's Day or Valentine's Day. But what we look at, um, once again, are the trends, and also in order to quickly respond to those, we design our product and constantly release products on an ongoing basis, so as frequently as every two weeks, and are constantly testing things in small batches and getting feedback So we have a much closer relationship with our customer and we constantly have new products cycling in and out of our store. And if you compare that to 
the regular jewelry store experience is very different because if you go into a regular jewelry store, chances are the product you saw to, you see today is the same product that you saw four weeks ago mm-hmm. or two months ago, or else we always have something new and different. And that's particularly important both for the woman who's browsing and bored on her lunch break, but also in the online space where, as you all know, attention span is short. People can easily copy things, and you constantly have to be coming up with the next greatest thing. Yeah. So I want to drill down on this point just a little bit. Uh, I, When you said fast fashion, one of the standard classic business school cases is Zara, which is a model of looking at what's trending or, or trying to perceive trends and then getting it in the store quickly. But Zara controls their own supply. Is that also the way you do it? You control your own supply, or are you really curating products that are being provided from third parties? We actually do both. So we create our own product, um, create and design our own product. We buy it white label and we also curate third parties as well. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is manufacturing and production costs are higher within the fine jewelry space. And right now, as a small company, having such a flexible merchandising model really allows us to take in a trend as quickly as it happens without necessarily having to invest significant amounts in production if there's already a great designer doing that trend. Mm -hmm. So it's a way for you to get assortment effectively without absorbing all the costs of development. Exactly. Yeah. Nadine, where did the give us the origin story? Where did the idea come from? So I launched the business, or at least I started working on the business when I was at Wharton Business School, and I was always very interested in entrepreneurship and decided to use my MBA as an opportunity to explore different options. I actually come from a healthcare background. One of the reasons why I didn't do your classes, I was part of the healthcare program uh. and had to do a lot of credits in healthcare. Um, but, you know, really my biggest passion was for entrepreneurship. And while I was at Wharton, I created a list of essentially problems that I faced in the market with the idea of being able to execute on one of them and turn it into a business. So I really just spent my time at Wharton testing and evaluating different ideas based on criteria such as you know, the opportunity and my personal ability to execute in the space. Um, and one thing I would say is, you know, one of the reasons why I didn't end up pursuing a healthcare opportunity is because my background, because of my background in marketing and business, I didn't feel like I would necessarily be the key driver or mm. the best person to launch that business, particularly given I come from a biotech pharma background and, you know, skill sets and experience and things like either deep science or um reimbursement, being able to negotiate with payers is becoming increasingly important. So I found that, you know, jewelry was a sector that I loved for more personal reasons. And I felt very confident of my, the match between my skill set and what's required to succeed in this space. Okay. So you're, you're an MBA student at an elite business school. You have, you've cataloged a bunch of pain points and you decide that jewelry is the one you want to pursue. Uh, What did you do next? How did you validate the opportunity? So I did a number of different things, you know, one of which was obviously like any good management consultant set out a roadmap with goals and (laughs) different tests and different hypotheses, which I would have to pass in order to continue with the business. Mm -hmm. The first stage was really testing the business concept, both in terms of consumer demand for it and more of a 
a market research way through surveys and talking to people. Mm -hmm. But I also did test customer acquisition through um, testing launch pages and signups as well as the cost of customer acquisition for each of those signups. Via AdWords or something like that. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Using AdWords. Yeah. So let me just underscore that. Actually, let me ask you. So tell, tell our listeners how to do that. They have an idea. They want to sell, I don't know, fishing lures on a, they want to make a fishing lure website. How, how could they test that using AdWords? So what I did was set up a very simple landing page yeah. explaining my concepts and the product that I was looking to offer. And at the bottom of the page, because I really wanted to spend as little as possible on the development side of it, I had a sign up here mm -hmm. um, to capture their email address because um, even though it didn't go all the way to purchase, my thinking was that at least that, you know, people have to be fairly interested these days to give up their personal information. Um, and in order to test, you know, the cost at which I would be able to attain that personal information, I ran ads that directed to the landing page mm -hmm. and targeted them at keywords that I thought my customer would be interested in. And then you can observe, essentially, how many clicks does it take to get somebody to sign up and what do you have to pay for them, which would be a proxy for the acquisition cost. Yes, exactly. Okay. One of the caveats I would add there, though, is that if you are spending a small budget on testing, it really doesn't ever give you the complete picture. Right. And it was important for me to round out the the directional data that I was getting from that type of quantitative testing with talking to experts in the space. And I think for me, most importantly, really finding experts who agreed with my assessment of an industry that I was unfamiliar with and similarly felt like an opportunity existed in the space. Okay, so I guess you, you have, at this point, it's still a concept. Nobody has yet given you their money to buy something. What did it take to have what we would call today a, an MVP or a minimum viable product? And what was that MVP? So I actually created a website and curated a group of approximately 15 designers for launch. Hmm. Um, so in some ways, that was my MVP. But if you take a step backwards, um, a big validation step for me was just to do an initial design of the website, which I took to one of the biggest jewelry shows and at the jewelry show spent my time pitching designers to see how many of them I would be able to sign up. And it was definitely a very mem memorable experience because this is in one of the most luxury Vegas ballrooms and everyone's mm -hmm. really dressed up and you know I had no idea what I was doing didn't know the jewelry industry at all had a mock-up of my website <laughs> and was just approaching people left and right pitching them to join a concept in a website that I hadn't even built and how did that go um, it w definitely gave me the confidence that I needed to uh, pursue pursue the idea. Um, I got some really good feedback. I think you know the feedback that I got further helped to fine tune it. And I think one of the critical things that I learned through that experience was 
just in a sense how fragmented the market is and how specific you have to be within the consumer and retail space to really understand what your point of view is and how you're going to speak to a specific customer. Because I really found through talking to lots and lots of different designers that some of them who were in my segment were interested, but there were others who just spoke to a completely different customer, for example, an older woman with more expensive product, and that wasn't a good fit, and they were just not interested. So, in a sense, you had to have a point of view, essentially a focus as to who your customer was, use that to drive the 15 or so uh, brands or uh, designers, I guess, that you would represent on the site. It's easy for me, that, that sort of, it makes total sense and it seems like a fairly straightforward thing to do. And I can imagine that many designers would very happily list their products on a, on a website. Um, did you also have to take, what kind of bet did you have to make? Did you have to take an inventory position or did you take an inventory position in these items or not? I didn't take an inventory position. And so all of our product then and to a very large extent today is based either on consignment or a made-to-order model. Oh, very nice. Okay, so even today, you are mostly, you're either passing orders through to someone else who will, oh, is it consignment or is it third-party fulfillment? We don't do third-party fulfillment because we really believe that we need to own the final customer. Yeah, and control the experience being a luxury purchase. But what we do do is either have the items on hold from the designer Mm -hmm. or they are made to order. And one of the benefits of being in the jewelry industry is that because the materials tend to be readily available, you can create items very quickly after purchase for the customer. And that obviously gives you huge benefits in terms of having a negative working capital cycle. Right. And so you get paid before you deliver the the product, basically. Exactly. Yeah. And what is the lead time you can offer? So essentially, product turnaround is any time between three days for a simple item mm-hmm. to two weeks for a mm-hmm. more complicated item. Ah, very interesting. And that that's... A really interesting and sounds like quite critical portion of the of the business model because it minimizes the capital uh, required. I want we just have a few minutes left, but I want to ask about the traction. So it you know we were joking. Twenty twelve seems like yesterday, and you've been at this now five years, which some people you know will perceive as an overnight success, right? So maybe you could tell us a little bit of where you are today, where the business is today. Sure. We actually only launched three years ago because I did spend quite a bit of time validating the idea Mm -hmm. and building out the concept. But in terms of where we are today, we closed around at the end of 2015 and leveraged that to establish a showroom in New York City, as well as to redevelop our website. So ever since launch, we've been growing at a super strong space, uh, sorry, super strong pace, more than doubling in revenues each year. And I would say the most exciting thing for us is a few months ago, we launched a private label, which focuses on Diamond Basics. And this has been incredibly well received and really the growth has just been exponential here. So we're very excited about using this as a lever to scale our business to a completely different level in the next few years. Mm -hmm. You know, I I saw in something in preparing for the interview, I saw that you'd opened this bricks and mortar store. This appears to be a recent trend that the online 
retailers are starting to, to do bricks and mortar. Talk a little bit about that decision and the, the model you took, the approach you took. Definitely. I would say we definitely don't think of ourselves as an online-only business. At some point, you know, we believe that we just have to communicate and interact with customers wherever they are, and that will always include some kind of personalized interaction. Our vision for the future with respect to brick and mortar is to have a series of showrooms like our first one in New York, where we have inventory for people to browse, but it can't necessarily be purchased on the spot. Mm -hmm. So it's more of a showroom and also a place where they can get, you know, for example, their jewelry cleaned or their ears pierced and really um, learn from us about the jewelry industry and once again, how to wear their jewelry and what piece to purchase next. So for us, it's really an interactive sort of clubhouse for customers to come and just learn about jewelry and have fun. Um. And then, and then we just have a, a minute, but I wonder if we can circle back on the, on the fundraising. We sort of glossed over that. Um, what do you think were the key elements that made this uh, financeable? What was, you know, it, it, at one level, it's a fairly simple business, but what was it that was attractive? What do you think uh, were the key elements that made it uh, fundable? I think certainly from a business perspective, our low inventory model Mm -hmm. and our ability to test designs represented a big transformation from the typical jewelry industry model, which is exciting for a lot of people. And I would say, second of all, we really hit a nerve within the industry because traditional retailers are really in trouble. They're having a terrible time trying to connect with a millennial consumer. Mm-hmm. And so people within the industry immediately understood what we were doing and why it resonated so differently to what traditional retailers and brands are doing. All right. Well, that's a, a great answer. And I, I think, you know, I'm glad we got to the business model because it seems quite critical uh, to the viability of, of, of what you're doing. Uh, Well, remarkably, Nadine, we're out of time. This went really fast. But thanks so much for calling in and joining us for the show. Thank you. It's been really great to be on the show. And can I just mention that it's Valentine's Day coming up? Oh, everyone go to (laughs) stoneandstrand.com. That's stoneandstrand.com. Guys out there, it's Valentine's Day. You know what to do. Do the right thing. Okay. (laughs) Thank you, Carl. All right. And you can also follow them on Twitter at stoneandstrand. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM, Channel 111. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud.